0: I want us to talk about words. And sure, I mean, most of the time when I preach and when I talk, we're reading scripture. So we're reading words on a page. We're talking about how those words, what those words meant to the people who wrote them, what it meant to the people that they were written to. Uh, Sometimes we talk about the context of those words and the way that they fit within history and all of that. And then ultimately we discuss how do those line up with the message and the teaching of Jesus? and, And then how do those words then come to us and what do they mean as we interpret those words, and that's a huge thing for us to understand. One of the struggles that I see in our culture today, as people try to talk about the Bible, is that a lot of people th- say things like, "Well, the Bible says." And what I've told my friends, and I had a conversation with a couple friends last night, was, you know, what what we often need to remember is what our interpretation says. Whenever we read, we are always interpreting what we are reading. And so we have to come to a place where when we read the scripture, we come to a place of humbleness to it. We come to a place where we understand that we could, we could be wrong about something. We might be interpreting uh, a different way. We need to have grace and mercy and, and understanding of people who look at things maybe in a different way than us. We see ourselves standing within a, a history and tradition that, that dates back to the time of Jesus. And as people have understood his story, if people have read the scriptures, they've taken this and they've tried to understand it within their context. They've interpreted of those words we've come to different places so today what i want us to understand what i want us to see is that we need to be charitable interpreters of scripture that means that we understand that we are exploring the way of jesus in jesus we see grace and we see mercy we see love and we see forgiveness we see joy we see compassion we see inclusivity in the message of jesus so, when we go back, we interpret the scriptures in those ways. That ultimately, what we want to do is we want to be charitable about our interpretation. We want to be filled with grace about our interpretation. But we also want to judge our interpretation. Does it line up with the way of Jesus? Does our interpretation of a passage and what it means to our lives help us in our exploration of Jesus to become a more loving people? Is it truly good news to all people as we interpret the scripture? Does it help us to see things with more grace and with more grace, uh, mercy and love and forgiveness? If our interpretation doesn't lead us to those understandings, if our interpretation is is about un, unforgiving towards people, if our, if our interpretation shows us not to be merciful to people, if our interpretation leads us to hatred or bigotry or greed or racism or any of those things, then we need to reassess our interpretation and begin to back up and see it in a different way. And all of that, All of that concept and understanding around the concept of interpretation leads us back to a conversation that I want to have today about the language of Scripture. And I want to talk specifically about a word that we find in Scripture and how it is translated, how it was used, how it came to us, and why that has a huge impact on how we understand this thing that we call the church, and why that matters is because today, as we continue our Apostles' Creed series, as we come towards the end of this series and the end of the creed, we come to a place that we affirm what we call the church. Now, to understand all of this, we have to come to this understanding. The books of the Bible were written over hundreds of years by different people from all kinds of walks of life, from different places in at least three different languages, in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. See, sometimes I think we struggle. And I've said this before, that we sort of imagine that the Bible just kind of showed up, maybe on our grandma's coffee, room ta- or coffee table, finished and, 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 and together in the English language, Maybe sounding old with thou's and these and thy's, and that's not it at all. Scriptures were written over hundreds of years by people who spoke different languages people who spoke Hebrew, people, people who spoke the language of Aramaic, the people who spoke the language of Greek. And so these books and the way that they were written, this library that we call the Bible took all this time to come together as people wrestled with their faith, sought to understand God, sought to see what he was doing in this world and sought to be a part of what he was doing. And so as you read these books, what you're seeing is you're seeing a journey. You're seeing people have this experience and, and, and they didn't realize at the time that they were writing the Bible. They were writing letters to each other. They, they were writing stories They were helping their children and their neighbors to understand how they saw the world. So again, that brings us back to the interpretive piece that we have to understand context and things like that. But thinking about it and being in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, we have to think about the languages of the people reading this. And so there is a huge thing that takes place, an important, very, very important reality that takes place that sometimes we don't even think about, which is the translation of these scriptures. And these translators who take the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and bring it into the languages that that people are reading and hearing today, these translators have this incredible responsibility to do that. Now these translators typically come from, they're usually built within teams, so it's not usually one person interpreting. Um, Sometimes you have that and typically we would call that more of a paraphrase than necessarily a translation or if it is a translation, we would want to compare that to other translations because most of the time these people work within teams of people and they, they work as teams of people from different backgrounds and different skill sets. Uh, You have people who are specific in certain languages, and that is their skill set. You have historians. You have people who are theologians. And so these teams come together to try to get the text as close to the meaning of the original text. This is a never-ending process because archaeologists make discoveries. Language evolves. And the Bible is translated into languages for the very first time. So, you know, as as archaeologists continue to dig and find things, they don't just find stuff about the Bible. Sometimes what they find is they find stuff that happened around the time that people were writing down the scriptures. And so that helps us to understand because then we see, "Hey, look at this." This story or or this this concept or this idea is found in these other texts around this ancient world, how does that help us to understand what these people were talking about today? J- just kind of an aside, one of those places that's great is we talk about the flood narrative. We see all of these different flood narratives that we find in all of these ancient Near East uh, literature. And so we say, well, what do we do with that? What does that mean? Well, it helps us then interpret it and understand why did these people write this story the, the way they did and what does it tell us about how they understood God and how they understood their world over and against what we're seeing in these other stories? So this is kind of a cool thing that just kind of helps us to see things from a different perspective. We talk about things like that the language begins to evolve. Now, you know this, if you have, if you have kids and they come home, particularly preteens, and they begin to talk and they begin to say things and you're like, what? What did you say? And, and you start to realize your age because you realize, um, I, I, don't, I don't know what that word means. I, what, are, like, what are you saying? So we see this evolve and change and take place. It's amazing to me that when you begin to see this, and we see this all the time. I mean, just our technology alone, we talk about things, we say hashtag, right? Everybody knows what that means. So my kid looks at the phone, they're like, what's the hashtag symbol? Well, most people think of that as the pound symbol, right? We would understand where that came from and how it happened. So language evolves. So these scholars, again, have just had this incredible responsibility And so with that then, they have to make a lot of choices. So scholars and translators come to text and they look at it and they say, okay, so we have to make a choice now. How do we translate these words to give us a word in our context, in our language, in our modern day, so that we can understand what the text was trying to say? And this is why it's often good to look at a lot of different translations. And what's cool is if you go back, you can see the evolution of language and the evolution of words, you can then sort of see like, why did they talk about it this way? Why did they translate that word like this? Was there something that we've learned that helps us to see it in a different way? And the point again is, you know, we're trying to understand the word. One of the things I like to do is, I also like to go back to the original language And my strength isn't in Hebrew, but I took uh, four semesters of Greek. And so I've got a little bit of a Greek background and I like to look at the Greek language and I'm definitely not an expert Uh, but it is an area that I enjoy looking at because I want to see why did the translators translate the way they did why did they do it and how does that help us to understand the text in a relevant way today so when I preach oftentimes I'll say hey you know the Greek word that we're looking at is this word the context had it like this people understand it this way maybe there's some meaning for us today in that word and how they might have been talking about it at that time. And here's maybe how it's been translated and why it's been translated in these different ways. And let me just show you a couple of examples of this. And then we're going to get really deep into this text and why this matters today. One of the things that we say when we talk about translation is we talk about translation, which means taking the word, uh, let's say in Greek, for instance, with this word blepo, and you have this word blepo, and that's this right here. You have this word blepo and you look at that word and you say, okay, so what does this mean in our English language today? So this Greek word blepo means I see. Now, Jill knows it means I see because Jill helped me study when I took Greek back in seminary. And this was one of our words on one of our cards and she read it to me and I would go, I see. And it was just this great reminder. But now every time I see blepo, I think of that moment but I know blepo means I see. Now, when you look at this, you realize this I see in our language looks nothing like this word. Well, that's because what we're talking about is translation. So this is saying, okay, so what did that word mean? And again, pop this up on the full screen, Jill, just so they can see it clearly. What did this word, blepo, mean in its context And translators look and say, hey, in our context, in our language, the simple, simple translation, one to another, blepo means I see. But sometimes things get a little weird. And sometimes the translators, rather than doing a direct translation, do what is called a transliteration. And it's the process of taking a word, and rather than finding a common word, they create a brand new word from the phonetics of the original word. Now, this is easy to see, not through here because this is translation, but through a couple different examples. For example, the word messenger in our Bible is this word. And Jill, go and put this on the full screen. And if you look at this word "agelos," you can see that this looks very similar to the word that we have here, angels because rather than translating as messenger, direct word for word, the translators took a word and made a new English word out of the phonetics of that word, so, so agalos becomes angels. So when you read the scriptures, if you know the direct translation, sometimes it's better to go back and say, is angels maybe the right term here, or is this a better term to think of the word messenger? Now another place that we see this is a word that i love baptizo so Joe, look at that i love this word baptizo and you can see that this got translated into baptism they just phonetically took it baptizo into baptism now what's fascinating about this word is the greek word baptizo was a common word that meant to wash things like vegetables it but so so you would wash your vegetables you baptizo your vegetables but you would also use the word baptizo to talk about what happened when someone was placed underwater and brought out of that water as a ritual of faith of being immersed in water. So yeah, you would immerse your vegetables, cleanse your vegetables, but you would also baptizo people as they were cleansed, as, as they were brought into new life. And so the translators saw meaning in that, and they created the word baptism. But going back helps us understand why do we do things the way that we do it? How do we understand this word, and what does that mean for us today? Now, all of this conversation brings us today to the word church. 300 years after the death of Jesus and his resurrection, Constantine, the emperor of Rome at the time, legalized Christianity. So 300 years after Jesus, the, the, this incredible time period in the life of the church. We see all kinds of persecution. We see the growth of the church. We see all of this happening. This emperor Constantine comes into leadership, becomes the emperor, and he ends up legalizing Christianity. And before this, Christians faced incredible persecution. And during this time of persecution, as, as somebody, if someone was martyred for their faith, the people in that faith community would gather at their grave... For worship, now I know this sounds kind of strange and kind of different. But what would happen is in that time of persecution, that three hundred years, if your friend died and if they died because of their faith, if they were martyred, particularly if they were martyred, you would come to their grave and you would celebrate the Eucharist or communion. You would worship together at the site of their grave. Well, then Constantine comes around in year three hundred. Uh, around the year 300 begins to legalize the faith and here's this crazy thing that begins to happen. People had been coming to these graves for worship. It it became almost a place, a de facto place of worship for the people because the community mattered so much. Living and dead you were a part of the community of faith. Now I'm going to get back to that and why that matters so much. But what would end up happening is that the people would build these structures around these graves of these martyrs and they would come there to worship. Sometimes they would even take the bones of these people and they would place them in crypts or in place underneath the actual communion table. Now, some of you know this because you, you know European history, you know about the, the churches in Europe, and you know that that's something that they ha- have done and is something that's still done today. Um, and so you know that these communion tables have this place. And so what's fascinating about this is that they, they built these buildings, they built these places. Romans eventually would call these places basilicas. But the Germans referred to these basilicas, these places of gathering and worship as a kirch. And then this word moved in to English and it became the word that we know and use today, church. So these people would gather at the martyr's graves. They would worship together. They would build structures on these places. The Romans looked around and said, look at the Christians, they're gathering together in these places called basilicas. Eventually, the Germans would translate to those are called Kirch. And then eventually, those would come to English and we would refer to it as church. Now, what's fascinating about this and why I wanted to take this deep dive into language is that with the words Kirch and church, we are seeing transliteration occur between two modern languages which wouldn't be a huge deal if we were only talking about how people refer to these places or these basilicas, these places of worship. But this matters because we're not just talking about transliteration, about these places of worship. We're actually talking about the use of Kirch as a translation and how it had a huge impact on the way that we understand the word church so let me give some background then we're gonna get to the text okay so again it's all about translation we see transliteration taking place here from kirch to church but now we have to back up because we understand the transliteration between our two languages german to english and we understand what's happening here is this talk and what we picture what we envision what we see why this became this and we often think about building and structure we think about this basilica we think about this place of worship but what's fascinating is the german translations translators when they used this word kirch they used it in place of another word in greek that translated doesn't come into this but means something completely different and that's what we need to look at today to help us to understand how this had a huge impact on the way that we think about the word church so to do that to wrap all of this together i want to go to matthew 16 13 through 18 the first time that we see this word show up in the scriptures when jesus came to the region of Caesarea philippi he asked his disciples Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon Peter, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. As we talk about the Apostles' Creed, we've been talking about who do we say God is? Who do we say Jesus is? Who do we say the Holy Spirit is? And it leads us to who do we say and what do we say about the church? connects all of these beliefs together here we see that they're asking the question who is jesus who do you say i am peter gives this declarative statement you are the messiah the son of the living god and then jesus says upon that rock upon that belief upon that foundation upon that understanding upon that peter i will build the church now context as i told you always matters as we read a passage like this Jesus was teaching right outside a city called Caesarea Philippi. Now listen to this. Caesar had given the city to Herod the Great as a reward for Herod's loyalty to Caesar. Herod, in return, built a huge temple where citizens could worship their emperor god, Augustus Caesar. So, so do you see what's happening here? Caesar looks at Herod and says, Hey, I'm so glad that you were uh, so supportive of me. Uh, and so here's what I want to do. I want to do something for you. I'm going to gift you this city. Herod says, Caesar, thank you so much for the gift of this city. How can I honor you for your gift to me? And Herod says, I'm going to build a temple. And in this temple, people can come and worship their emperor God, Caesar. So in a very specific place, in a very specific building, worship to a specific person, Caesar, was taking place in a very specific way. And then it's within that context, just outside those gates, just outside that city, just outside that place, that Jesus makes this statement about the church. And as he does, he makes it in direct contrast to what his followers saw around him. What they saw as this transactional thing taking place, as they saw this place of honor taking place because of something you did for you and you did for you and you did for you and I'm going to build this. And, And then they saw this as this specific temple and place that they were coming to worship. And Jesus says something so different. Instead of talking about worship in a specific place, instead of talking about worship in a specific building, in a specific way, Jesus, in this moment, reimagined for them, reimagined for us the idea of worship and the idea of church. We know this because the word that got translated church, or in our German, kirch, a word used to describe a building where worship took place, was used in place of a word, a Greek word, ecclesia which is the exact opposite of a building and a word that shows us what Jesus meant. Okay, so listen. When Jesus talks about church in this passage and he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this belief in me as the Savior and the Messiah, the Son of the living God, upon that I will build my church. Jesus says, upon that I will build my church ecclesia and ecclesia gets translated by the german translators into the word kirch which then gets translated transliterated into the english language as the word church and the sad thing about this process the unfortunate thing about all of this is that as we go back through these layers we miss The original meaning of this word and this word is so important to us if we're going to understand the word church and especially if we're going to understand the word church in our context and what it should can and does mean for us today because the word ecclesia that jesus used here when he said upon this rock i will build my ecclesia had nothing to do with buildings it had nothing to do with temples. It had nothing to do with the context that they saw themselves in, surrounded by this reality of temples of a specific place in a specific building, worship taking place of a specific specific person in a specific way. See, in the world of the Greek language, in the world that the writers tell us Jesus talked about the word ecclesia here, the word ecclesia was used when people talked about a people coming out into a gathering, given a mission and a vision for their lives. Ecclesia was used to describe the leaders of a city gathering for important votes. Ecclesia was used for soldiers being called up to battle. Ecclesia was used for people gathered around unique causes in their community. Ecclesia was a gathering of people around a mission and a vision and that's how jesus used this word jesus used this word because when jesus taught his disciples that day it had nothing to do with a specific place or a specific building but way more to do with a specific people with a specific mission and a vision around surrounded upon their belief in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Jesus was saying, upon this truth, Peter, your belief in me as the Savior and the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, upon that truth, I will call people out to. Upon that truth, will I build a community of people centered around a mission and a vision. Now, we saw this last week. We talked about Pentecost. The moment the followers of Jesus experienced the empowering, the unifying, the life giving experience of the Holy Spirit. And so today, we see an extension of that teaching and what it means for our lives in the here and the now. This is so amazing and so incredible. And I think so important for us today as we talk about the mission and the vision of Southeast. Who are we called to be? I look around our world. I see what happened during the pandemic. People who couldn't wait. People who put themselves in front of others because they said, no, no, no. The church has to be in this place, in this location, at this specific time, gathering together because that's what church is. And the answer is we look at the scripture, we see what Jesus is talking about here. Absolutely not. The church isn't about multi-million dollar buildings. The church isn't about haze and lights and smoke. The church isn't about giant parking lots. The church isn't about a specific time at a specific place gathered together. When we do that, we absolutely miss the purpose of church. We miss the purpose of the ecclesia that Jesus was calling us to. Does that mean gathering together doesn't matter? No. We see that in other places that worship absolutely matters together. Does that mean buildings are always wrong? No, absolutely not. Does it mean that we need to be better stewards of the resources that God has given our faith communities and use those to honor him? 100%. 100%. It means that the resources that God has so graciously provided us as people should 100% go to the mission and the vision but we have to balance that out we have to recognize and see this reality i was just telling a couple friends a couple a few days ago that one of the things that continues to guide me and i think one of the things that has guided our church in helping us to be good stewards of the resources that we utilize is that we've we, we have always balanced and said okay so how does how does this support the mission and vision of the church One of the ways that we did that was through Waterstep, an organization that we support. And one day I sent an email down to Waterstep and I said, hey, how how much money does it take to give one person clean water for an entire year? And they said (laughs) $1.25. Now think about that. With $1.25, we can bring clean water to one person around our world for an entire year. So I began to think about that. So every dollar that we spend we need to remember that that's offset, that that's a that's, that's $1.25 that we're not giving to support this organization. Now you can get lost in that and you can miss and you can focus and say, and you can, those balances have to be very careful about that. But think about this. Are we making an impact and a difference in our community and our world? And are we using those resources to do that? Or are resources going over here and causing an imbalance? And I think this is one of those things that we have to look at today. This is one of those things that drives us as we think about our future and how we move forward as a church. We want to live out the mission and the vision of Jesus. And that mission and vision is built upon this teaching. He says, upon that, I will build my ecclesia. And when we get this right, everything changes about how we understand the community of God's people gathered together. is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, pause here. Last week we said that we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit because we believe through the Holy Spirit that we have been called to be a holy people, a royal priesthood experiencers of the goodness of god to go share it with our world if you missed last week go back and listen to that teaching again make sure to go back because that is such a critical part for us to understand the holy spirit empowers us unites us pushes us forward into the mission and vision that we have as a community of followers of jesus but listen what happens in the apostles creed as we continue on i believe in the holy spirit The one holy church, the communion of saints. (laughs) I believe in the one holy church, the communion of saints. Now, if we aren't careful, if we don't have all this background that I just talked about in this sermon today, if we don't have all that in our minds, we can make a shift. If we don't think about the word church and all we've learned, we can forget that the church isn't a place where religious stuff takes place, but that it's a holy people with a mission and a vision to change the world, built upon the teaching, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me clearly say that again. Let's not get this mixed up. Let's keep this idea of ecclesia in our hearts. That church isn't a religious, uh, uh, isn't a place where religious stuff takes place, but is a gathering of people. So when we came together on First Sunday, we came together on First Sunday last week, that was good. And do you know why that was good? It was good because we came together as followers of the Holy Spirit, the followers of Jesus, unified by the power of the Holy Spirit to be sent on mission and vision to share the good news of Jesus with our world. And we sang together and we took communion together to remind us of Jesus' teaching and life and death and resurrection. We read the Apostles' Creed together and we learned together and we got to sing together and, and be with each other. And all of those are great things. But that is an aspect of the church. It is not the church. What we find here is that the church is a holy people with a mission and vision to change the world, a mission and vision built upon the good news of Jesus. If you've heard the Apostles Creed before, you've read this, the one holy church, but maybe you've read it as the holy Catholic church. So maybe this sounds a little strange to you. If you read this in, in different versions, if you looked up Apostles' Creed today and saw it in Wikipedia or Googled it, you would see an asterisk there with a note that the Catholic word there means the word universal. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. It's talking about the original use of the term meaning universal. Again, are we seeing how translation works, how transliteration works sometimes? See, so we want to be careful about that as well. But what this is pointing to What this word is pointing to is that this is the idea of all followers of Jesus everywhere. See, again, we see that language matters. The followers of Jesus around the world are one holy church. So that's the translation that we've decided to use as we talk about the Apostles' Creed. The one holy church. Because we want everybody in that space as they come together and read the Apostles' Creed together. To not have to throw in an asterisk, to not have to have a time where we get have, have to explain confusion away, but where we can boldly say together with unity, one holy church. And understand that we are talking about all God's believers everywhere as we reach our hands in fellowship to all people who come to follow the way of Jesus. And then the creed says a communion of saints. And that phrase is another way to describe us. The words holy and saints describe this gathering of people, you and me and all of us together who make up the community of the church, those who came before us, those today, those who will be in the faith. We talked about the word holy last week when we about the Holy Spirit. Holy means separate, different, called out for a purpose. And saints is a word used here that means the same thing but in a different way. So when you hear the communion of saints, don't get confused here. Understand that the word saints comes from the Greek word agio. Used as a noun, it's translated saints, but used as an adjective just means holy. A communion of holy, called out people. This just pointed to the reality of being different, separate, called out for a mission or a vision. An ecclesia of Jesus followers. For followers of Jesus, like the disciples before us, what we're learning here in the Apostles' Creed is that you and me together are called out to be a holy community. See, Jesus says, don't do this faith on your own. Don't try to do this on your own. Upon this truth, I am building an ecclesia. When we recognize that Jesus is Lord... When you and I recognize that He is Savior, we are not called to go off and do faith on our own, but we are called into community with each other. Whether you have participated in that community with others, whether you did in the past and you're coming back home, whatever that looks like for you, we need each other. We need this community. We need to be part of a holy community people a holy community a community of saints and in one sense we are holy in our present reality giving our lives over to god's mission and vision for our lives that means to be holy to be separate to be called out to to embrace the mission and vision that god has given us as people and in another sense you and i become holy as we follow Jesus, giving our lives over to him, becoming more like Jesus, becoming people of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. And we become holy. The one holy church. The communion of saints. The ecclesia of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text and this story today. We thank you for language that helps us to understand and helps us to see the kind of people that we're called to be. Help us to be a gathering of people. Help us to continue to seek the best ways to use the resources, God, you have so graciously given us to be the people who follow your mission and vision for our lives as individuals and as this church community, people called together to live out your mission and your vision. God, I thank you right now in this moment for the leaders of our church the leaders who I get to sit with that we talk about the direction and where we're going and where we're headed. God, people who who are supporters and encouragers, who are dreamers, and God, who desperately seek your mission and your vision for us. Help all of us to embrace the mission and vision that you have for us as a church community. An ecclesia, a follower, followers of Jesus gathered together. God, in this season, as we continue to embrace a different way of looking at church, not just going to church, but being the church, help us to see that that is not some kind of marketing statement, but that is built on solid theology, interpretation of Scripture, of where Jesus tells us that that's the kind of people that we are called to be. Father, help us to continue to grow and to learn and to serve and worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.